This is a reading from Psalm 110, which uh, extols the great king of Israel. It reads, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us this day for us to gather together in unity to worship the one true living God who is king and ruler over all things. Father, I pray that as we gather, as we listen, as we worship, that you would just give us insight into the mystery that you are, that you have planned throughout the ages, that you would help us to understand and experience the love that you have for us and the hope that we have and our faith. Father, I pray that you would teach us through your word, that we would be encouraged so that we could go out after today renewed, strengthened, willing to serve you and all that you do. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. If anyone knows me very well, in the least, well, even just a little bit, you know that I'm kind of a geek or a nerd. Um, I don't wear glasses, but if I did, I'm sure they would probably be as big as dinner plates. Because uh, I just really like learning about new things and just interesting ideas. Um, and one of the things that I was looking at this week as I was preparing for the message is uh, there's a philosophical idea called physicalism which is basically, like, most people in our country believe it. It's this idea that all that exists is the physical. There's no spiritual dimension that exists. A lot of people believe that in this country. Um, and in 1982, there was this guy named Frank Jackson, and he put forward this, it's a thought experiment, which is kind of like a parable that Jesus would, would talk about. You know, it's just like the story that makes you think about a bigger idea. And what he said is, I want you to imagine there's this lady named Mary. And Mary is a very brilliant brain scientist, neurosurgeon, or neuroscientist. She, she knows all there is to know about the brain. And she grows up and she learns about color vision, how people can see different colors, different shades, textures, stuff like that. She learns about how wavelengths of light traveling through the air, they hit your eye and they excite certain neurons going on and how these play into your mind and how we interpret that as vision, as brown or blue and how we can look up at the sky and go, oh, that's a blue sky and all these things that are going on. But Mary grew up in a black and white room with a black and white television screen and she learned about color vision and how our brain interprets it all while not being able to see color. So imagine that, he says. Then imagine that one day Mary leaves her room and she walks down the streets of the city and she sees a red apple. The question that he's trying to get us to think about is, 
will Mary have gained anything new when she sees the red apple? Will she have learned something new? And his argument was really trying to say that, you know, we can know everything there is to know about something, but not actually know it really. You can know everything there is to know about how we see color, and if you're colorblind, like, it's not going to matter. You've never experienced the color red. You've never seen a red apple or, or the orange sunset or green trees, and that's something you're missing out on. And so we have to ask our, ourselves, is there more to life than just simply having a wealth of knowledge about stuff, about knowing about God, maybe having a list of doctrines that, you know, our church believes in and going, yep, believe in one God, check, believe in Jesus, check, believe in the Holy Spirit, check. Is there more to life than that? That's the question that I want to raise today. And, you know, as I was preparing this, I thought about playing a video because every time I see these types of videos, I kind of feel very empathetic with these people. But if you've ever, um, go home and YouTube, not right now, but go home and YouTube, like people who, <laughs> or do it right now, I didn't do it, uh, but go, go home and YouTube, uh, I don't know what it would be called, but basically people getting, uh, colorblind people getting uh, color binoculars. Has anybody seen a movie or seen a video? So what they'll do is they'll have like mom or dad who's been colorblind all their life. They'll bring them out on the front porch and they're like, hey, we got a present for you. And they'll open the box and it's like a pair of sunglasses. Well, it looks like sunglasses. And the, the mom or dad's like, what? what is this? And they're like, just put it on, put it on. It's going to be great. And, and so the person's like, okay. And, and they put it on and then they're just kind of frozen for a minute. And then you just see them weeping. I mean, they just start crying because they've never been able to see color before, but all of a sudden, because they have these special goggles, they can experience the green grass, the red apple, the blue sky. And they just, they have no category for how to deal with this, and they, all they can do is just bawl. They can just weep. And you know, that's kind of like what happens in our life, right? When we, we come to know Jesus, we really, we just hear about him, and he's just kind of one of those things that enters our mind, and it's like, okay, that's another fact. But then as we grow and as we experience him and we, and we know him more and more, we have that emotional response and we, and we, and we just, just something inside weeps. So I kind of gave away my entire uh, sermon in that little instance. But, uh, <laughs> but that's basically the main idea. We're reading through Ephesians and we're going to be reading through Ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 through 23. So if you want, open your Bibles there. And in verses 15 to 23... Paul is offering a prayer of thanksgiving and a prayer of intercession. So he's praying for his audience, his Ephesian Christians. Last week, David talked about the previous verses, uh, I think 3 to 14 is what you preached on. 3 to 14, Paul is saying, blessed be God because he has done all these marvelous things. He has brought us into his family. He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. He's given us freedom from sin, and he's given us forgiveness. And so Paul's coming off of that blessing to God, and he's going into this thanksgiving. So this thanksgiving can be, or the prayer can be, really divided into three different sections, and that's how I'm going to take it this morning. So the first part is verses 15 through 17. So we're just going to read together. Chapter 1, verse 15 reads, For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do, not got, I do not stop giving thanks concerning you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, 
might give you spiritual wisdom and revelation concerning knowledge about him. So Paul says, for this reason, right? What reason? Well, we just said, because of all the great things that God has done for us in Christ Jesus, all the blessings we get, because of all those things, I'm praying a prayer of thanksgiving. I'm so thankful that God has blessed us richly and deeply in, in Christ. And he's, and he's brought us into his family. And then he says, the other reason is actually two. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. And that's really got me thinking because I, I know that in my past as a Christian, my prayer life, you know, it can kind of come and go, right? We pray when things get really, really difficult and we need something from God. And then sometimes it's like, okay, everything's perfectly fine. But Paul here, he really is giving us a model. He's saying, man, we should be praying and thanking God every day for our brothers and sisters in Christ because they're faithful to Jesus. And, and that's what God wants in the world is he wants people who are faithful to him. And, and Paul is looking out at these Christians and he's like, man, we have all these, all you guys, you are so faithful. You have faith in Jesus and I'm so thankful for that. And not only that, but you love each other, like genuine love. You know, David and Rick, I can see that relationship. Man, they really care about each other. And other, other of you guys, you know, out there, you really care deeply about each other. I can see, I mean, like, you know, anytime food's around, people start loving each other. I, it's, it's so amazing, I'm telling you. That's just, it, I can't believe it. No, but for real, you know, because we have Jesus, our love for each other just overflows, and that's how it should be. And Paul is praying and thanking the Lord. Oh, thank you so much, Jesus. Because these people, they truly love each other. They know, they know what it is to love. So then Paul goes on and he says, I do not stop giving thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So I'm mentioning, I make mention of you in my prayers. You're always on my mind. Every time I pray, I pray for you. What do we usually pray about? Family, friends, ourselves. Yeah, I, I didn't include this, uh, but I was looking in, at some statistics, and it was saying that a lot of Christians in America, it was, it was like organizing it by percentage, and it was saying basically the top percentage is like 75% of our prayers, family and friends. And then the next three categories, I don't remember what they were, but they were basically all about ourselves. My life, my blessings, my job, my X, Y, Z. And then at the very bottom, it was other, like 2% other. And I'm thinking, I wonder if that 2% is our prayer for our, our church. Because <laughs> if so, there's, there's a big problem with that. But Paul, you know, he models again prayer. He says, I pray, I make mention of you in my prayers. You're always in my prayer. And I hope that that's something that we can do. I hope that that's something that, I mean, I need to work on that. But I hope that that's something you all, got, all you guys do. Just mention one another in your prayers. Praying for David. Praying for Rick. Praying for Sarah. Praying for Ida. So then Paul, in the next verses, he really starts digging in on what he's praying about. And he has a specific kind of, a, not really an outline. It's not like he thought about it beforehand and wrote it down and said, all right, now I'll publish this. But he's telling them, man, this is the content of my prayer. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father who is full of glory, that he might give you spiritual wisdom and revelation concerning knowledge about him. Now, I have to really quickly ask a question. 
Who, raise your hand, and this isn't going to embarrass you, it's just what Bible you're holding, but raise your hand if your Bible has a capital S on spirit. Anybody got a capital S spirit? A few of you? So I'm assuming everyone else has a lowercase spirit? What's going on there? Is it the spirit? Is it a spirit? So what happens is, is when, when you go back to the original language, there's a little bit of ambiguity because Paul does not include a certain word that he would normally include if he wanted to refer to the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that he's not referring to the Holy Spirit. It just means that we have to figure it out. And so what happens is that you have interpreters and they sit down and they have these big meetings, business meetings with food and they all love each other. And they go, <laughs> in the spirit of love, they go, all right, um, scholar John, what do you think? Should we make it a capital S or a lowercase s? We're not really sure. You've studied this passage a lot. What do you think? And he goes, well, I think it should be a capital S. All right, ESV stamp, capital S. That's kind of what happens. Um, but in, in the original language, there's a little bit, they have to figure out, okay, is Paul saying that he wants God to give them the Holy Spirit or that, God, that he wants God to just give them like a, a discerning spirit or, a, you know, their own spirit to be able to have wisdom and to have revelation? And I think at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because either way, if, God, if he's praying that God gives you the Holy Spirit who gives wisdom and revelation and knowledge, then you're going to have that spiritual understanding, right? God's going to, the Holy Spirit's going to give you that spiritual understanding. And if Paul is praying that you would just have the spiritual understanding and revelation, boom, there you go. You have it. You know, and the Holy Spirit gives it. There's really not a distinction. So, you know, if, you're, if you go home and you look at this passage and you're like, why is it the Spirit, a Spirit, what's going on? It's all good. Just know it's a little bit of language stuff, but it leads to the same idea. Paul wants us to have wisdom and insight and to, and, to, and to know God more and more each day. So this word wisdom, in the Greek it's Sophia, and the Hebrew it's a little bit hard to say, it's chachma. Can everybody say chachma? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's why nobody speaks uh, Hebrew except for the Israelis, right? Because I just couldn't do that. Um, but anyway, in the Old Testament, Wisdom, the first time you see this word wisdom show up, it's very, very interesting because it's not what you would expect. It certainly wasn't what I expected. The first time you see wisdom show up is in Exodus when God says, here's your blueprint for how to build the tabernacle. Go build it. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to give wisdom to some of these crafts guys so they know how to you know, be iron workers and electricians and do all that stuff. He gives them the knowledge... <laughs> I don't know what you said, but I'm sure it was funny. He gives them the knowledge and the, oh yeah, he gives them the knowledge and the understanding so that they can go out and build this tent. Not what I was expecting. Wisdom, isn't that something you gain as you go on in life and you learn more? No, it's actually something that God gave the Israelites so that they would be able to make a building. Interesting. And then later on, so there's this idea of ability or skill. And then later on, we see that a lot of the kings of Israel, they were given, like Solomon, right? He prays for wisdom. And, and how does that play out in Solomon's story? We see story after story where Solomon makes good decisions. When people bring, well, not with the wives, but when people bring, <laughs> bad decision, where'd you go? 
when people bring him a case, right? Because the king, he was the judge too. He decided who was right and who was wrong and what the consequences were going to be. But when people brought him cases, right? There was a story about the woman, the two women who had the baby. And they were fighting over whose baby, you know, who, who's the baby mama. And, and Solomon, in his wisdom, he's like, okay, I can figure this out. You know, and he, and he goes about making the case to figure out who the true mom was. And, and that's seen as wisdom. He has this ability to make right judgments, to, to be able to discern what is true and what is not true. So Paul is praying here that we would have spiritual wisdom, that we would know spiritually what is true, what is not true, what is fake news, and what is God news, gospel news, right? And also that we would have revelation and the knowledge of him. This word revelation, apocalypsis, the book of revelation, right? A revealing. It's not supposed to be a mystery. It's supposed to be something very obvious, something that we know that it's been uncovered and we can have knowledge about God. So Paul prays for Christians to be given this, this understanding, this insight, this wisdom given by the Holy Spirit. So Paul goes on and he says, in verse 18, this is our next section, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And I know I'm leaving the rest of that sentence off. Just hold on with me for a minute. So two things come out of this. Paul says, I want you to have the Holy Spirit. I want you to have this understanding for three reasons. And we're going to look at two of them in this verse. The first reason is, I want you to know, and again, this knowledge is not this, okay, I've got facts, but this experiential knowledge, like you see color. I want you to see the color of God's hope, of the hope of God's calling. And he says that we've been enlightened already. The eyes of our heart have been enlightened. Like, when you come to Jesus, something happens. It's not like you just gain a piece of information. No, 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 no. When you come to Jesus, he makes you see. Your, your, your eyes and your heart, they are opened, and you can start seeing color vision, right? You're able to understand these truths. And so he says, like, look, you've already come to Jesus. You know what is the truth. So I want you to experience it further, the hope that we have in God's calling. You know, God calls us to be holy children. And I think what Paul's thinking of here is what he talked about in Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 14, where he says, we've been called to be holy and blameless in God's sight, a family unit. In Ephesians 2, 12, actually, hold on. Hold on to that thought. This is for you, Maurice. Maurice will tell you about it later. Yeah, so we are, we've been called to God's family. But notice what he goes on later to say. He says, Ephesians 2.12, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So that's what he kind of goes to next in his next chapter. But his, what he's, in his thinking, he's going, Man, before you knew Jesus, you guys were just wandering in the desert, lost, blind, you couldn't see anything, black and white, it was horrible. But now that you've come to Jesus, your eyes have been enlightened. You know, you have hope. I was looking at some more statistics this week, um, and I know that the state of our country, it's very, very, I'm not even talking about politics, but just people's welfare. I was reading the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention 
Um, it was reporting that suicide is now the 10th leading cause of deaths in the US, that about 50,000 Americans die by suicide annually, and that for every suicide, uh, every suicide, there are 25 people who actually attempt and fail, which, if my math is right, is about over a million people a year, in just in this country. And I'm not telling you that just go, whoa, that's crazy. Um, but I mean, guys, like, there's a real big problem that we have that people have in this country. There's less and less people who are believing in Jesus and have hope, and there's more and more people in this country who are just hopeless. And when people are hopeless and they don't know where to turn and they've gone through it all, they come to a bottom, right? And a lot of times, if they're not in an environment where, where they can be given the truth and, and the knowledge about Jesus, they just decide there's nothing else I can do except to, in this pain, I've got to end it all. And that's really, really sad. And that should really encourage us to go out there and spread the good news about Jesus even more, right? I like the way Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. I'm not, you don't have to turn there, but he just he says this. This is his, his opening letter, the opening of his letter. He says, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Man, you know, in Peter's mind, he's like, we have this hope that is alive. Jesus, resurrected from the dead. Like, we know as Christians, when you die, it's not like your body just goes in the ground and that's the end and then, oh well, too bad, and then in 1.5 billion, billion, trillion years, the universe is going to heat death. That's not our story. Our story is, he's coming back, he's going to reign, he is reigning already, but we're going to be raised from the dead. That's not the end of the story. We have this living hope because we know a man who has gone through death and come out the other side alive. Second thing that Paul wants his, his Ephesians, Ephesian Christians to know first thing was the hope that we have because God has called us to his family. The second thing is, Paul wants us to know the wealth of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. This is a very interesting phrase, the wealth of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Some of your translations might put those words a little bit differently. That's okay. Again, his entire letter is very, very, very difficult Greek. So we have to figure out, okay, what's going on here? But the basic idea is, we're God's inheritance. We're his possession. The word inheritance or possession it, there, it's a, it's a word that in the Old Testament, actually, most of the time it refers to the land that a person owns. So, you know, if this was the medieval ages, I would grow up and my parents would give me the land and I'd own the farm after they died, right? And awesome, this is my inheritance. Um, Sometimes, though, in very specific passages, the Old Testament actually says that Israel was God's inheritance. Israel is not land, although we think about geographic Israel, but the people Israel was a possession of God. So I want to read you Exodus 19. I've read this before in one of my sermons. It says, well, so this is after they go through the desert, after the after Pharaoh is defeated and they cross the Red Sea, the Israelites go into the desert. They come to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain. And he's like, all right, I'm going to talk to God for you guys. And it says, Yahweh called him out of the mountain saying, 
Moses, this is what you're supposed to say to the house of Jacob. Tell the peoples of Israel, you yourselves, this is what he wants the Israelites to know, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what I want you to tell the Israelites. So in the Old Testament, man, Israel, God's treasured possession. You know what I think of when I think of this? Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I know, Lord of the Rings again. But it's what I, the first thing that popped in my head, The Hobbit, right? Anybody seen The Hobbit movie? Uh, okay, so there's some younger people in here who are like, yeah, Hobbit. Um, anyway, so I'm going to use it. But in The Hobbit, they go, to the, they go to this mountain, and it's called the Lonely Mountain, and there's this great dragon that lives in the mountain, and the dragon owns all this treasure. And so you see in the movie and in the book, they're walking through the mountain in the cavern, and the hobbit doesn't really know that there's a dragon living in there yet or that he's actually physically in the room that he's in. And he just sees all this gold and silver and these trinkets and everything else. But there was one thing that they were looking for, this stone called the Arkenstone, I believe, this stone that was like the most treasured possession for the dwarf king who was, anyway, it's a long story. <laughs> anyway, but my, but my thought was like, you know, it's like God is just walking through his treasure trove. He's like walking over the earth and is like, look at all that I own. Oh, Israel, this is my favorite piece right here. That's what he told the Israelites. And then Paul, in his mind, he's like, you know what? Because of Jesus, Jesus has invited us to be a part of God's people. Now God says, look at my people. Look at all these Christians who are under, my, under Jesus, my treasured possession, my inheritance. God wants us to know that. And not just to know it as like check mark. He wants us to experience that. How awesome is that? You're valued. You have value to God. You are his treasured possession. You who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we can just end the sermon there and go home glad, right? But no, he, he, wants, us to, he wants us to know even more. So the third thing that Paul wants us to understand after we have this spiritual understanding, the first thing, the hope that we have in God's calling, the second thing, how, how God is wealthy in us by having us as his inheritance. The third thing, and this is really great because Paul just spends the rest of the the rest of the chapter on it. He wants us to know God's surpassingly great power, which is for our benefit. Would you read with me verses 19 to 23? So going back to it, he says, I want you to know, 19, what is the surpassingly great, what the, sorry, what is the surpassing greatness of his power for us who believe in accordance with the activity of his mighty strength, which he put into action in Christ by raising him from the dead and by seating him at his right hand in the heavenlies, far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the coming one. And he placed everything under his feet and gave him as head over everything to the church, which is his body, the, full, the thing full of the one who is filled in every way or the fullness of the one who is filled in every way. We'll get to that in a minute because it's kind of confusing too. So 
Look at how awesome and powerful God is. That's basically the idea here. I want you to know and experience God's mighty power, which is for your benefit. It's, it's for your benefit. It's all done for you. That's what he says in, in, in verse 19, that it's for us who believe. This word power here, it's the same word, um, the same word. It's actually where we get the word dynamite. It doesn't mean dynamite, obviously. He doesn't want us to know that God has a storehouse of dynamite and he's going to throw it down sometime. <laughs> that would be a little scary. <laughs> but it's this like, it's this really, really powerful thing. And in the Old Testament, I keep going back to the Old Testament, but you guys, like Paul is thinking Old Testament here, right? This is, this is his thought. This is his world. In the Old Testament, that word was associated with military strength. When someone had dunamis, they had military power. And a lot of times the people thought that, oh, the gods, like the gods that we worship, they had a, they had a strong hand, and that strong hand was the army of the great nation that we are, and the, and the, and the God was going to go to war, and that war was envisioned as, you know, people battling on earth, but also there was a war in heaven. That's how they thought back then. And so, and so the Old Testament's like, you know, God has power, and that, that power was displayed primarily in the Exodus, when God won a victory over, over Pharaoh, who is, who is just the great evil of, of the Exodus story. And this carries over into the New Testament, right? What happens when Jesus walks around, and he's encountering people, and these people are doing, like, they're, they're possessed by demons, right? And what does he say? He says many times, and, I, and there's, not, there's not one phrase I can think of that would capture it, but basically his idea was, the kingdom of God is coming, and you know this because I'm defeating the demonic powers. I am waging war, Jesus said, on the demonic. That is God's rule and reign, his power being displayed. And Paul takes that up, that idea, and he says in verse 20 that God put his power into action, or he worked it in Christ, in the Messiah. How did he do this? He did this by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavenlies. So the, the ultimate display of God's power in the story so far that God is telling is that Jesus was raised from the dead. That was the ultimate victory. On the cross, God won a victory, and in the resurrection, God proved that he was the ruler over all the earth. Paul is also here alluding to a psalm that I read when I first came up, and that psalm, I get it, it's probably kind of weird and it was difficult to understand, but basically, it was, the psalm was originally 110, it was exalting the king of Israel and saying, look how great the king is. Not because he's a man and who he is, but because God has installed him as king. He is our king because God made him king. And Paul picks that idea up and he says, look, God seated Jesus at his right hand, at his powerful side. That's what it means, that given him a position of authority, he's installed him as king over all. And he picks this idea up, and he, and he runs with it. He just, he just can't help himself. He says that Christ is seated over all other powers. And he just goes on, and he lists all these words that really kind of convey similar ideas, but pull, you know, rule, authority, dominion, all these things. God, Jesus is above all of that. And in a world where, in our world, it's so difficult because we don't really think, like, I'm not even going to get there. I'm not even going to go there. That's another soapbox for another time. But we usually think of 
the way the world works is like there are these laws and there is, you know, gravity and very naturalistic. And, and a lot of times we don't have room for the spirit world. But we're going to see later, and David's going to preach about it in, in later chapters, that there is a spiritual battle, that there are spiritually realms. Jesus was seated in the heavenly places, right? And he's ruler over all things. And for a people in that day who were so concerned about pleasing this God and that God, David mentioned it last week, the Ephesian city, I mean, it was the capital of pagan idolatry, right? There was a temple of Artemis. They had hero worshiped. I mean, they worshiped all these different gods, and they were so concerned about pleasing this God and that God for crops and yada, yada, yada. And Paul's like, look, shut that down. Jesus is over all of them. You don't need to worry about them. You know why the gospel is taking root in Africa so well today? Because those people, their primary concern in life is, how do I please my ancestors, the spirits? How do I please this God? How do I, how do I show honor to the spirit tree, the, the spirit that's in the tree, to make sure that my crops do well, to make sure that I can feed my family? That's their concern. The gospel comes in and says, you want to know how you can do all that? Jesus, he's ruler. You don't have to worry about these other gods. Jesus is the ultimate authority. He's seated over all the powers. And Paul goes on, he says, he's been seated, he's over all dominion, he's got a name that's above every name, in this age and in the one that's coming. And he placed everything, God placed everything under Jesus' feet. This too is an allusion to another psalm. It's Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, verse 6, I'm going to read it to you. I'll read to you just that verse. Uh, but the psalm is talking about how God had made humanity and how he made humanity just a little bit lower than the heavenly beings. And he crowned humanity. Humans were meant to rule and reign on earth on God's behalf. And that's what it says in the psalm. And it goes on to say, Psalm 8, verse 6, you have given him, that is referring to humanity, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And, it was ta- and, and originally the psalm was talking about humans. But Paul takes that, he hijacks that verse, he says, you're coming with me, Psalm 8, and I want you to now understand that it is actually Jesus who is over all things. God has exalted the human Jesus, who is also God, And he has put all things under him, under his feet. Jesus is now the true human who is able to do what we could never do. Isn't that good news? That's so good news. I know I haven't had like a funny illustration, so like the the atmosphere is super heavy, but it's okay. We'll get through it. God is in control. That's what, we're, that's what we're talking about is God's power. So it should feel heavy in here. Um, so, God, so, so Christ is elevated. The human Jesus is elevated. And he, he has authority and dominion. And all things, creation, has been given under him. And then Paul has this very, very odd last sentence. Oh, well, he says that he's been given his head over everything to the church. Fact of the day um, What's today? Does anybody know what today is in the Jewish calendar? Rosh Hashanah? Yeah, so that's uh, yeah, the new day. 
the new year, actually, not the new day, the new year, Rosh Hashanah, means the head of the year. Interesting little tidbit. So, like, you know, everything flows down from the head. That's how it goes. So the whole calendar just goes top to bottom, starting with the first day. Interesting little tidbit. But Jesus is the head over the church. Everything that the church does should flow down from what Jesus is, right? Who Jesus is, that's what we want to be. What Jesus does, that's what we want to do. Who Jesus loves? Everybody. And then lastly, Paul says in verse 23, he has given everything over to, uh, he has given Jesus as head over the church, that church, which is his body. And then I don't know what you have in your translations, but I'm sure it's different than your neighbor. Some of you probably have something like uh, the fullness of the one who fills everything, or I don't know, just randomly. Sun June, what do you have? Verse 23. Yeah, okay, so the fullness of him who fills all in all. And, and, and maybe that's different than what you have. I don't know. I struggled with this, with this particular verse because there are a lot of different translations, and they all kind of sound like they're saying the same thing, but we have like this fullness of fullness and fill in every way, and what's going on here? But the conclusion that I came to is that the church... Paul says, the church is meant to be filled with Jesus. The church is the fullness of Christ. Christ is here today. He is with us. I know you can't see him, but if you look in your neighbor's face and you see that love that you have for each other, that represents the full love of God in you because of Jesus, right? So the church is filled with Christ. And then it goes on, and at the very last little tidbit, he says, and Christ himself, this is the way I take it to read, Christ himself is filled in every way. That's an interesting little tidbit. Christ is filled with who? With what? Well, if you go over to the sister book, Colossians, and you read what Paul writes in Colossians, he says something like this. Don't, and I'm not quoting, I can't remember off, my, off the top of my head exactly how it's translated, but Christ, in Christ, the fullness of God's presence dwelled bodily. Jesus is full of God. He is full deity. He is full just, I mean, you know, God. There's just no, else to way, no other way to say it. Yahweh decided to live on earth when Jesus was born. God's very presence resides in Jesus. Jesus resides in us. And it's in every way. All in all. I think in Corinthians, God, uh, Paul says that God is going to come so that he can be all in all. He wants his presence to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that starts in the church. So I want to read you Ephesians 4.15 to end. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. 
So Paul's prayer for the Ephesians and his prayer that would be extended to us is this, that we would have this spiritual, spirit-given understanding, knowledge, experience more deeply that we are a hopeful people because we've been called, that we are a rich people. We are actually God's riches. He is rich because he has us, not because we're great or anything, but, you know. And also, he wants us to experience and to know God's amazing power, his mighty strength that he put on and display in Jesus when Jesus was exalted, resurrected, put over everything and given to us to lead us. And he is in us and with us and works through us for the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this day. We thank you so much for this passage. Father, I I do thank you that Paul, even though he was in chains in Rome, even though he himself was imprisoned, that he was able to write this, this awesome prayer of thanksgiving and prayer of intercession for Christians everywhere to know that God is in control, to know that the one true living Jesus is ruler and king above everything, and that we get to partake in his people and his family. We are children in God's family, and, and God dwells with us, in us. Father, I pray that as Paul prayed, that we would get to experience this more deeply, more richly in every way, that every day, every week, every year, we would grow in our knowledge of you. We would grow in our love for each other. We would grow in our faith in the Lord Jesus, the Supreme One. Father, we just bow our hearts. We bow our knees. We look forward to the day of your return. We look forward to the time where there will be no tears, there will be no sin, there will be no pain. Until then, live in us and help us reach your world with your gospel. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.